Prior to moving to Peoria, my wife Tina and I were close friends with three other couples when we lived in Champaign. And for a period of about 15 years or so, we experienced life's challenges together, raising teenagers, the college years, some of our kids getting married, navigating in-laws, changing our jobs, health scares, struggles in our own faith, becoming empty nesters, and then dealing with aging parents together. Now, all of us led our own small groups, but we would gather about every three or four months for dinner and took turns hosting that evening. Some nights it was just wonderful to relax and talk about nothing deeper than the fighting Illini or our kids or our grandkids. But then I would often tire of dinner table conversation, and so I would press the eight of us with a self-disclosure question. And it was something that was designed to cause all of us to share at a deeper level, you know, our thoughts, our opinions, our struggles, our successes, our fears, our failures, and even our feelings. And all the men went, gasp. (laughs) Now, while I initially took a lot of grief from the other members of that dinner group, uh, we actually grew to enjoy these times of self-disclosure. And eventually the tradition emerged that whoever was hosting the dinner was responsible to craft the self-disclosure question or exercise. And over the years, God used these relationships and those dinners and the self-disclosure exercises to both encourage and challenge uh, Tina and I to, to grow both personally and spiritually. Now, this morning, we're continuing the sermon series that we've titled, How Do We Grow? Uh, so far, we've uh, learned that Jesus offers hope, hope that we can become new and different people as we come into his kingdom by being born from above through the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw that God's desire for all of us as his children is to grow in Christ-likeness. That is, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we can think and speak and act in a more Christ-like manner. There is only one Jesus. We'll never be Jesus in that sense, but we can grow to become more Christ-like in our Lives. We actually, uh, we will learn that we can actually close the gap between where we are and where Jesus is as we lean into fulfilling the command found in the book of Ephesians to throw off our old sinful nature and our former way of life and instead let the Spirit renew our thoughts and minds to put on our new nature created to be like God righteous, and holy. And then we finished last week by identifying the three core ingredients of Christ-likeness. And we saw how the first, that is to cultivate an intimate relationship with God our Father through prayer and his word, which we saw as the two primary disciplines of Jesus' life, that these can cause us to grow by changing the ways we think. And then I invited all of us to uh, attend a three-week class that we're calling Thrive Through Proactive Thinking uh, that's going to start tomorrow night, Monday, 
the 23rd, then Monday the 30th, and it'll conclude on Monday the 7th of October. And this little three-week class will will uh, equip us uh, to discover how our beliefs and values determine our behavior as the root, so the fruit in our life. And we'll see that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can actually identify our irrational and unbiblical beliefs and values, and then with his help, how to change them so we can become new and different people. We can grow to look more like Jesus, consequently uh, living more Christ-like lives. And uh, there is child care for those of you with children that's available here at the church. There's a modest fee for that. And you can sign up for the class on the city or in the Connect card that Ruth talked about earlier, just so we have an indication of how many materials to prepare. We will record the class and post the recordings and the material on the city for those of you who would like to follow along but aren't able to join with us. Now, today we're going to actually then spend a few minutes discovering how God can use the second core uh, condition of vital, authentic relationships to cause us to grow as well. So let's uh, pause to pray and welcome the Lord here. Lord, your word declares, shout joyful praises to God, all the earth. Sing about the glory of your name. Tell the world how glorious you are. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Everything on earth will worship you. They'll sing of your praises, shouting your name in glorious song. Come and see what our God has done and what awesome miracles he performs for his people. Let the whole world bless our God and Sing loudly his praises. Our lives are in his hands, and he keeps our feet from stumbling. Lord, at the start of this brand new week, this brand new day, we gather together by setting everything else aside that competes for our time and our energy, our demanding schedules, our busy lives, and we pause to gather together to shout joyful praises to you, to rehearse the glory of your name, to worship you, to see what you have done, to hear about the miracles you perform for your people, to bless your name, to sing loudly your praises, and to be reminded that our lives are in your hands. We are secure in you, and for that we thank you. We welcome you among us today, Lord, not just here in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids, too, where they're worshiping and singing and learning and growing as well. Come and have your way in all of our lives is our prayer in your name. Amen. Well, if we want to be good at something, we have to practice, don't we? Um, whether it's cooking or crafting, sewing or swing dancing, programming a computer, painting a watercolor, or playing an instrument, laying bricks, plumbing a bathroom, solving crosswords or sudokos. Practice enables us to grow into a new skill or a a new behavior. And so if we're to grow into Christ-likeness, it's likely that we're going to have to practice the things that Jesus did. We want to look like him. Now, last week, we saw that in the spirit of irreducible simplicity, that Jesus' life in ministry could be summarized in three core areas. Again, 
cultivating an intimate relationship with God the Father. Secondly, living in authentic community with the 12 apostles. Thirdly, compassionately and powerfully extending God's kingdom, his love, his truth, his mercy, his power to others. Those are the three core areas of Jesus's life. And so if we want to grow to look like Jesus, then we too must practice these three core areas, these three core competencies. And today we're going to talk about the second of the three. Last week we reflected on cultivating an intimate relationship with God. Today we're going to talk about living in authentic community. Now, Jesus lived in vital, life-changing relationships with the 12 apostles. Those 12 men were very different in terms of their lifestyle, their values, their background, their personalities, their temperament, uh, their place and station in life. But over three years' time, in the rhythm of their lives together, they experienced a radical change. Now, there were busy stretches of public ministry uh, as they... Uh, reached out and ministered uh, to the crowds of sick and hungry and demonized and spiritually thirsty people. There were private meetings with people who had interests, needs, or questions. Uh, there were times of teaching on the hillside, on a mountaintop, in a house, in the synagogue, in the temple. And then there were times where Jesus engaged the Twelve in confrontation in difficult conversations, in reproof and rebuke. And this is what authentic community, real relationships, looks like. And it was in the context of these real relationships that the 12 were transformed. Jesus also calls us as his followers into authentic relationships so that we too can grow and change. Now, on one occasion... Jesus was asked to summarize uh, the most important command of the entire Old Testament. And he said, uh, in the words of the song we sang already today in Matthew 22, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is now often called the great command. But Jesus summarizes here uh, that um, uh, this is what's important. So we could see in his response that Jesus' first core competency of cultivating an intimate relationship with God is the loving the Lord your God with all your heart part of that command. And Jesus' second core competency of living in authentic relationships is the loving your neighbors as yourself part. Don't you see how those those two things that occupied the lion's share of Jesus' life were reflected uh, not just in, in, in the Gospels and what he did and what he taught, but actually in this one command. Love, love God, love others. Cultivate an intimate relationship with God. Learn to live in vital and authentic relationships. Now, I think it's interesting that the rest of the New Testament teaches this very same thing, that our personal and spiritual growth to Christ-likeness is directly dependent upon our involvement with and our commitment to real relationships. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, the 
third chapter, the Apostle Paul says it this way. May the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. And may he, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all of his holy people. So we see here the direct connection between relationships. In this text, it's used the growing and overflowing in love with maturity, a direct connection, maturity that's used in this text as the language of strong, blameless, and holy. You see that connection? Now, I'd like to see... uh, 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 more clearly in in several other texts. And if you have a Bible or Bible app, you might want to look at this one yourself in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. A powerful text. We'll be reading uh, this together, be projected on the screen as well. By the way, if you you don't have a Bible that is in the New Living Testament uh, translation, the one that we use, you can pick one up here on uh, either side of the stage, these yellow Bibles. They're also available at the Info Center. You can grab one. It's our gift to you. It's, it's the New Living Translation that we use uh, regularly here in, the, in our teaching and preaching and in all of our literature. Ephesians 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. So now, here again, in these four verses, we we see that we're to imitate Christ. That's called Christ-likeness. And we're to do that by learning to love, by being kind, by being tender-hearted, by being forgiving. We might say by having healthy relationships. So here again, we see the direct connection between our growth to maturity or Christ-likeness and healthy, God-honoring relationships. Let's look at one more text for good measure. Paul's letter to the Colossian church in chapter 3. Begin reading in verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And so, in the same way that Jesus forgives and loves, we are to forgive and love. A direct connection between our growth to maturity and our relationships. I could say it this way. You know, friends, we could read the Bible, we could pray, we could fast, we can worship, we can give generously, we can share our faith, we can serve and work in the church. 
But we could never really grow up if we aren't entering genuine relationships in the way that these three verses have challenged us to live. My conviction is that God is going to use relationships with people to cause us to grow in a way that nothing else does. Why? Well, because in relationships, you have irritating habits to overlook. You have personalities to make allowance for. You have other opinions to tolerate. You have quirks to ignore, offenses to let go of, hurts to forgive, debts to release, prejudices to repent of, hard-heartedness in others and yourself that you have to grow to be tender towards. And this is the work of growing towards Christ-likeness. This is what is accomplished in relationships. I could say it this way. You cannot grow to maturity as a Christ follower in isolation. It is impossible. It requires real, honest, authentic relationships. So practically speaking, just how do relationships help us grow? Great question. I want to share just a few insights I suggest that they offer for us the potential to own our own stuff. The stuff that's in the gap. The gap between us and where Jesus wants us to be. So I'd like to introduce you to the concept of the Johari window. Don't let this freak you out. Not that complicated. It's a simple diagram. I know it's a, a, it's a, like a, 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 a scary sounding word, but, but the Johari window is actually uh, an inter- a picture of an interpersonal relationship uh, that was first developed by two psychologists, Joseph Loft and Harrington Ingram, Joe and Harry, actually. We get, the, we get the name by a combination of their first names. And it's a pictorial diagram of interpersonal relationships. And you could just think of it this way. Joe and Harry are going to teach you how to grow. All right. It's four quadrants. Represented at the top, things that are known to you and then unknown to you. The left-hand column are things known to others and unknown to others. And there are four quadrants. The first is that, uh, in the upper left, is that which is shared. This is what's known by both you and others. Shared history, common knowledge. The second, uh, upper right, is the area that is blind. This represents those things that you cannot see, that is, you're blind to, But others can clearly see, you know, like that you have bad breath or that you always interrupt people. The the lower quadrant, things that are known to you but unknown to others, are things that you hide. So we call this quadrant the hidden area. It represents what you hide from others, a secret habit, maybe a besetting sin, a pattern of behavior, an insecurity or fear that you might have. And then the lower right-hand quadrant is that which is unknown to you and unknown to others. We just call that the unknown quadrant. And this would represent things that neither you nor anyone else knows, maybe a hidden pocket of need or of healing uh, or an irrational belief, an unhealthy motive, some insecurity you might have. This is the Johari window. Now, relationships grow 
when the shared area, what is known to self and known to others, has a chance to grow. We become healthier. We become more Christ-like. The shared quadrant actually represents the place of healing and health, growth towards Christ-likeness. It's where we know and love others, and we are known and loved. It's, it's the place of authentic community, the place of deep joy and peace and contentment and purposefulness. It's what the apostles experienced in the three years of living in genuine, authentic community with Jesus. It's where real life actually happens. And for relationships to grow, the shared area has to grow larger, which is what this illustrates. Now, the shared area doesn't grow larger necessarily just because you spend time with people or you share dinner table conversation. That's just sharing time with people and having dinner table conversation. The shared area grows as we become intentional about moving our relationships in three directions. I'm going to give you some real simple handles on how relationships grow. First is the shared quadrant becomes larger, and the blind quadrant grows smaller as we open up ourselves to receive honest, timely feedback. So the blind area is going to grow smaller as we open up in relationships to receive honest, timely feedback. This is where we're willing to actually hear and understand and respond to things that others who love and care for us have to say, things that we cannot see, which is why we need community. For instance, it might be that, you know, we're insensitive or that how we're currently managing our money is unwise, or that we might be unaware of how dominant we are in a group setting and how we talk all the time, or that the promises that we make we often don't follow through on, or that we're always late and never punctual, or that the manner in which we're speaking to our children is ineffective uh, in the language of the Ephesian 4 text, it might be that we have bitterness or rage or anger or that our words are harsh or that we're prone to slander or gossip. So my wife has had, in the spirit of uh, sharing with me honest, timely feedback, had to reflect to me, honey, there are a number of times where you try to be funny and you're really not. In fact... It's often misunderstood and can be very hurtful. I just think I'm funny all the time. That's the problem. But when I humble myself, when I let go of my pride and my defensiveness, the two barriers that stand in the way of receiving honest, timely feedback, when I let go of my pride and defensiveness, I realize that she's speaking to me the truth. And so what it's over the years, what it's helped me do is dial back my desire to be funny. And she still has to reflect that every once in a while. You know, you thought that thing you said there was like funny. Uh, that was not funny. That was hurtful. And so then I have to go apologize. Now, the barrier, as I said, in receiving honest, timely feedback from others is our pride and our defensiveness. We don't like to hear the truth, do we? Who wants to look in a mirror and see something ugly? No, it hurts. And so we get angry. We get defensive. Uh, we live in denial. We think, well, who are they to say that? I mean, look at their life. 
you know, like they have it all together or, you know, what gives them the right? Or like, I mean, how hypocritical are they? Have you seen what they did or said? And so then we feel justified in ignoring the honest, timely feedback or we otherwise numb the truth and then we persist in our unchrist likeness. But hearing the stuff that we don't want to hear and then owning up to it and then repenting by turning from it and, and examining our unbiblical uh, and irrational beliefs and, and making a change to, to press towards growth and Christ-likeness is never easy. Which is why I'm encouraging you today, embrace feedback. As tough as it is, and one of the ways that's going to be helpful in that process is to learn to listen. A good listener is in short supply in our culture and in the church. Most of us think we're pretty good listeners because we can carry on a conversation while we're watching our favorite football team on Sunday afternoon or reading the paper or playing a video game. Yeah, I hear you, honey. I hear you. That's not listening. No, listening takes focused energy and attention and engagement. So several things about learning to listen that will help us receive honest, timely feedback is give full attention to the person that's actually talking. Be fully there. Don't just be thinking about what you're going to say to them when they shut up. That's called a, that's called a monologue between two deaf people that aren't really listening to one another. A dialogue is where you're giving full attention to the person talking. And then secondly, actually reflect what it is you're hearing. And this will communicate to the person sharing, someone who loves and trusts you and is offering feedback, that you're connecting. So you might say, so let me see if I'm understanding you correctly. Or, so the major concern that you're sharing with me right now is. Or, you're feeling blank because of blank. Or, it appears to me that you're saying this. And this level of empathic, active listening is going to show people that you've actually heard and understood them, and it will empower you to respond by shifting uh, the shared area into the blind quadrant. And so honest, timely feedback is a gift from Jesus that's going to enable us to see our stuff. It's going to remove a barrier to growth and will become more Christ-like. And once you embrace it, in a spirit of humility and non-defensiveness, because pride and defensiveness are our two biggest barriers to actually receiving feedback, then we can turn from it, we can ask for the Holy Spirit's help, and we can change. Now, I said that we have to be proactive in, 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 in order for the shared area to grow larger in three specific venues. So the first is the, the blind quadrant grows smaller through uh, active actively listening and receiving honest, timely feedback. Second, the shared quadrant becomes larger, and the hidden quadrant becomes smaller through genuine self-disclosure. So in the area that's hidden, that which is known to us but unknown to others, it's going to become smaller as we self-disclose. We have to be willing to be vulnerable and take a risk and share our thoughts and opinions and feelings and our deep heart. Now, all of us know intuitively that there are levels of disclosure that we're engaged in. And and I like to think of them, there are five levels uh, of disclosure, each one revealing a successive 
deeper level of, of our heart. So there's cliche, hi, how are you, what's going on? And we mean absolutely nothing about what we say at that level. It's just a way of verbally shaking hands. And those conventions are necessary for culture to sustain. So there's nothing wrong with cliche, but you don't reveal anything of your heart. Hi, how are you? Nobody really wants to know how you are. And if you proceeded by giving a medical diagnosis, people wouldn't really listen. Or they wouldn't know what to do. And then the second level is dinner table conversation. Where are we going? What are we doing? Where are we going on vacation? What are we doing this weekend? When are we going to go to Tanner's Orchard? When's the car going to get the oil changed? Who has an appointment where? Who's got the kids? Whatever. Dinner table. 80% of relationships stay at levels one and two in cliche. Then the third level of, of disclosure is your thoughts and opinions what you think about stuff. And every one of you has them, that ranging from every subject to music and art and architecture and politics and religion and everything in between. But then that's not even the deepest level. There's yet a fourth level, which is your feelings. Because you can share similar opinions but have radically different feelings. And then at the at the deepest level is what I would call unedited self-disclosure. Your gut-level stuff, way down deep. And each of those five levels has a a progressively increasingly level of self-disclosure. To press towards level five in self-disclosure, pressing towards level five, always takes courage and a willingness to risk. And this is particularly difficult for many of us who maybe because we're wired as an introvert, or maybe because we don't want to be the center of attention anyway, or we're just not accustomed to sharing our stuff. But self-disclosure means that we share our, our, our dreams and our desires, our fears and our insecurities, our hurts, our habits, our successes, our victories, our weaknesses and our strengths our pockets of need, the things that we want to yet do in our life to make our uh, our life valuable and have significance and help and serve others. Or, for example, in the language of the Colossian text, we might share that, that we fail to make allowance for other people's faults and we, we fail to forgive people who offend us. In the language of the Ephesian text, we might self-disclose that we're, we have hidden pockets of bitterness or anger or harsh words or slander or gossip. We would self-disclose. Now, many times we don't self-disclose, period. That means you're passive. Other times we don't self-disclose until we explode. That's called passive-aggressive. And sometimes we're just belligerent. That is, you know, we're just out of touch with how we always come across. That is aggressive. We don't want to be passive. We don't want to be passive-aggressive. It's not Christ-like to be aggressive. It's Christ-like to be appropriately assertive by self-disclosing at the right time. So here's how it works in our family. Uh, honey, I feel really parented when you continually remind me of how much salt I put on my food. Okay, the real-life example, okay? You know, getting older, cholesterol levels, all that kind of stuff, and, oh, you know, on corn on the cob and tomatoes, got to pile on the salt, baby. And when she reminds me of how much salt I'm putting on, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not passive by not saying anything. I'm not passive aggressive by exploding after, you know, the third piece of, of corn on the cob. And I'm not always just grinding on it aggressive. I just say appropriately assertive by saying, honey, I feel parented when you continually remind me of how much salt 
I know how much salt I put. I'm enjoying it. Thank you. I'm going to die happy. <laughs> Everybody's got to die. I'm going to die happy with salt on my corn on the cob in my tomato. Thank you. Or it might work this way. Honey, I know that the last three years have been really traumatic and painful and adjusting and and you know you're finally feeling settled but i just want to let you know that someday i'd still like to design and build another house <laughs> and you saw that didn't you <laughs> spirit of self disclosure my gut level honesty now the barrier here in all of our lives is fear and insecurity We're afraid to tell others what we think and feel and believe because, well, if I tell them that and then they don't like it, that's all I have left. But my conviction is that self-disclosure is a gift from Jesus that's going to help us overcome our fears and insecurities and going to enable us to actually press towards God's calling in our lives, in the relationships. And we're going to find the hidden area shrinking and the shared area growing. Thirdly, the shared quadrant becomes larger and the unknown quadrant becomes smaller. Things that neither you nor I know. Through the exercise of the power tools or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, healing, and discernment. The Holy Spirit can move in our relationships. Today, at the close of our service, when when you're willing to be vulnerable and receive prayer, the Holy Spirit can speak a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom through the prayer team member in a way that neither one of you knew before the prayer exchange. Or this week, in your small group, when you break down into into groups to pray, the Holy Spirit can, can expose something in the unknown quadrant. Maybe in a friendship relationship, they'll, they'll share with you an insight when you have coffee, or uh, they'll share a thought with you as they've reflected on your, your life situation. Or someone's interceding or praying for you on a regular basis, and God might speak to them. Or in the gathered community, in small group, or, or in the larger worship service, or, or a class, the Holy Spirit might be at work revealing something to somebody that impacts you in a way that you did not expect or did not know, that which was previously unknown to you and others, is exposed and revealed and your cause to grow and change. And so when God operates in community, when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit is active and honored, we see and, and, and understand things that were not possible before, and we experience growth and change. So we can discover in this way our unbiblical, our our irrational belief systems, those roots. We can repent. We can receive forgiveness. We can receive healing and ministry prayer. We can be encouraged, and the behaviors begin to change. So to illustrate this, uh, at our quarterly couples dinners that I was referring to earlier, uh, before we moved here, I shared some of my concerns that stood in the way of us leaving the comfort and security of our pastoral staff position in our former church in our former town to leave and plant this church. And as that group listened and encouraged us, they received some special insight from the Holy Spirit about the roots of my fears. And then I didn't know those things were there. They didn't know those things were there. 
but then they prayed for us, and in that process, we received healing and encouragement. Now, the barrier in in this uh, uh, in this core competency is just that we fail to prioritize it. We lack to prioritize gathering together in environments where the Holy Spirit is free to actually move and expose uh, that which is unknown. We don't give it the time and attention that we should. But when we give the Holy Spirit priority in our relationships, it's a gift from Jesus that, that he can work in ways we never imagined. He reveals our deep needs. He heals long-standing issues. He empowers us to forgive or to let go. He releases new visions and callings and desires in our life. He can equip us as parents and as grandparents and as spouses. Uh, he releases us from other strongholds or lies or bondages that the enemy has held us in, all by the power of the Holy Spirit, releasing us to grow as we are free in Jesus. And so my conviction, what I've been trying to share with you this morning, is that relationships can actually cause us to grow because they have great potential through the Holy Spirit to see, enable us to see our own stuff as we receive honest, timely feedback, as we appropriately self-disclose, and as we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we can then press into growth and look more and more like Jesus. Now, for many people through the history of the church, the environment for these kinds of relationships where the shared area of our lives can grow larger and we can become healthier and experience growth towards maturity or Christ-likeness happens best in small groups. They're otherwise in many other traditions called life groups or care groups or community groups or cell groups or men and women's groups or whatever. Some Church structures, they're called Sunday school groups because that's where they happen. But as contrasted with larger worship gatherings like this morning, small groups are groups of 5 to 15 people where genuine friendships can actually form, which it's hard to do in a large group gathering, as you probably find today. You can reintroduce yourself and say hello to somebody, but you really don't get to the spirit of self-disclosure uh, you really don't get to honest, timely feedback or having an environment to, to discover that which is unknown. Small groups in all their forms gather regularly to study and apply the Bible to our daily life, to worship and pray together, to encourage and deal with life crises together, and then just to eat and hang out and do life. And in the 35 years of the Vineyard Movement, uh, we have valued small groups as uh, the way to do church life together, to experience community, genuine, authentic, transparent relationships, because they provide the best potential for these kind of relationships to grow. But even so, we understand that, you know, you don't always click with people in your small group. And so the last, over the last several decades, another set of uh, relationships often emerges out of a small group. And it's called a mini group, as in a really small, small group, a mini group. Not a mini me, but a mini group. Groups of two or four, two to three or four, gender specific, men with men, women with women, that connect at levels three, four, and five in relationship. They provide an atmosphere for transparency, mutual accountability, 
encouragement, and prayer. And many groups have taken lots of forms and are called lots of different things. But but in our church context, they're called the Big Five group. And the reason they're called Big Five is because we actually use a curriculum called the Big Five. And I've placed uh, samples of the Big Five books on all the tables today so you can take a look at what they are. It's a uh, it's a 16-week, time-constrained group of friends, and uh, you answer a series of five questions over three weeks each in order uh, for us to, in a spirit of relational accountability and transparency, grow, share our D part, and be open to feedback and allow the Holy Spirit an opportunity to speak. You meet for an hour or an hour and a half. could be in a public space like a coffee shop, a restaurant, a classroom, uh, someone's home or apartment. Uh, it, it, and you work through the five questions over, uh, over a period of 16 weeks. And, and the issue isn't the curriculum. This isn't the goal to get through the, the book and answer the questions. The curriculum is merely a catalyst for feedback, disclosure, and the power tools so that our shared area can begin to grow. Now, since we've been uh, to Peoria, there have been actually nine Big Five groups. Some of you have been, how many of you have ever been through a Big Five group? Just look around. We've, so, so about half of the group, the church, has been through a Big Five group. We've done them without fanfare or announcement just to, like, give them practice. But now we're just inviting all of you to experience the power, the life-changing power of a Big Five group. The curriculum is free. Uh, the books are ordered. They'll be here this week. And I would encourage you to talk to maybe somebody in your small group. If you're not in a small group, talk to a friend or two. And uh, we want to bless you to take the next step towards uh, growth in relationships um, as you step into uh, a Big Five mini group. For the last couple thousand years now, the, the Big C Church has been helping people grow, people from all walks of life, to grow to become new and different people. As we've proclaimed the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, we've said you can change because of Jesus. We said that he gives you the, the very personal and powerful presence of himself and the Holy Spirit to help you grow. And what we've discovered now in the last two weeks is that as we cultivate intimacy with God through prayer and engaging the scriptures, and as we live in vital relationships with others, we're going to grow to become more like him. And we're all anticipating, of course, the day of the final resurrection or the day when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, uh, so that we can be totally and completely changed to look like him completely forever. One of the ways that we celebrate these changes in our life is water baptism. Historically, the church has used the occasion of water baptism where we're announcing to the world that we've changed as we've become a follower of Jesus we get to actually do this in two weeks from today on the 6th of October. And if you've never been water baptized as a way of announcing that you've become a new and different person as a Christ follower, then we would, would welcome you to be a, a, a participant in two weeks. And here's what you're going to want to do. You can check that you're interested on the Connect card, and you can go on the city and you can look at the event called Water Baptism and respond there. If you have questions about water baptism, I suggest that you listen to our podcast from the, the 14th of April, where it was titled Understanding Water Baptism, where I preached a 30-minute message and 
unpack the biblical significance of the subject, or you can pick up a brochure at the Info Center on water baptism that explains in detail uh, about it. You can talk to your small group leader, or you can even talk to me at the close of this service or over the next two weeks. And we would love to have you join us in two weeks uh, when we uh, um, put the tank up here in front and we join with people in our church family celebrating the change that they've made as they've followed Jesus. Lord, we're just grateful and humble that you give us ways to grow, that you don't expect us to figure it all out ourselves, but you give uh, a, a community that's filled with your spirit, that's loving and compassionate and causes us to own our stuff and repent by the power of the spirit and grow to become different people. Thank you that we're not left to our own. We're not left to the, the ways in which we, we find ourselves when we, when we find you, that we actually can grow. Thank you for the power of your word, the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you empower us to let our love grow and, and Lord, that, that you do come to make our hearts strong and blameless and, and that you can empower us to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving and that you will enable us to make allowance for others' faults and that the Holy Spirit can cause us to grow to be merciful and kind and humble and gentle and patient. Thank you. Come and continue that work. And all of us here today is our earnest desire and prayer. And now, Lord, as we give to you our gifts and the offering, we pray that you'd receive these for what they are, tokens that we want uh, We want to say our li- uh, uh, we love you and we want our lives to count for you. Bless those who are giving today, Lord, those who desire to give but can't. And receive our uh, intentions of heart in the, in the worship as well. In your name, amen.